Adventures with Words is brought to you by Audible. Try Audible free for 30 days and download any audiobook for free. For your free trial, go to www.adventureswithwords.com forward slash audible. Hello and welcome to Adventures with Words, where we explore storytelling in all its forms. I'm Rob. I'm Kate. This week we're invited to a bloggers event at Simon & Schuster in their offices in London. And this is where four authors were there to tell us about their books. Yeah, this is the first time I've been to something like this. I know uh, Rob's been to uh, this kind of thing before, so I wasn't quite sure what to expect, but I I actually really enjoyed myself. myself. I thought it was a really interesting sort of afternoon and evening, and uh, it was great being able to um, chat to the authors afterwards and go around and and have a look at all these sort of really interesting books that Simon & Schuster have got coming out uh, in the near future. So in the first hour, we had um, sort of a Q&A with the four authors. I'll mm-hmm. tell you who are there in a moment. And then in the second half, it was more of a, a mingle. Yeah, yeah. Um, kind of we got to networking, mingling mm-hmm. sort of thing. So there were four authors there. And the first one we spoke to was Ali Harris. Yeah, now... Ali Harris is a relatively new author. This is her second book that's been published and um, the the one that she was there to speak about and it's called uh, The First Last Kiss. So she's also had another book uh, which is called Miracle on Regent Street and this is sort of a, I suppose she, she said she was happy for it to be classed as chick lit mm-hmm. unless yeah. people are going to use it in a derogatory way but she was quite happy for it to be known as that. And the the idea of it was there are the two main characters, Ryan and Molly, and it's told through their kisses. Mm. Uh, they they sort of memories, and it's I, th- I think it's mainly from Molly's point of view, and she's remembering different kisses, and they they tell different events in their lives basically. So it spans twenty years, I think is what she said. Yeah, yeah. So it's the it's the story of their relationship, the twenty years of their relationship, and then I think looking towards something that's uh, happening in the future. But it's not told chronologically either. She did say um, in the Q and A that she wrote it as a linear story, mm. and then had a friend round and uh, they're all on post-it all the chapters are on post-it notes and she took them and jumbled them all around to try and make this you know this the story that, that she's made so it's not possibly not straightforward chiclet i suppose you could say no possibly not i thought that sounded like a really interesting part of her writing process actually she did say as well when she was talking about that that her, her first book is set over the course of about three weeks mm. whereas this is set over 20 years and she found that a lot more daunting in terms of the scale of what she was covering so i think you know she said having the the friend there you know and they they worked through that process together she wrote it linear and then rearranged it i think that's that's a really interesting idea of of how to uh, sort of organise your story. Mm, it's a pair of fresh eyes as well, I suppose, which every, every writer needs. Something else that she was talking about was the idea of balancing um, writing with parenthood, because um, she obviously now is concentrating on writing, but she's also got two small children. And I thought that was quite interesting, how she was talking about actually kind of managing her time, because that was something that was one of the questions asked to all four of the authors in the Q&A session. You know, how, how do you kind of manage your time as a writer? Are you full-time? writing and she was saying actually she probably gets as much done now um you know in between sort of parenting commitments as, mm. as she would if she had a whole day just to write she sort of has to do it in these short concentrated bursts she doesn't get distracted by kind of 
online shopping or whatever oh, it might be. There, yeah. <laughs> or looking at YouTube or whatever. Yeah. Cat pictures. Yeah. yeah, cat pictures on YouTube. Yeah, so I thought that, that was really interesting as well to get a bit more of an insight into her, her kind of writing process. So hopefully we'll have an interview with Ali um, soon and her book's out on, in January, I believe. It does look quite fun. I don't think it's necessarily the kind of thing that you or I would normally pick up i mean i i think you wouldn't be a big reader of chiclet really possibly Rob. not but i must say if i was to if someone was to ask me for something to read in that genre i could say well this is something that's it's it's different it doesn't sound like it's the same thing being tread over and over again yeah it's got something unique about it i think yeah and again i think that got my attention it's not the kind of thing i would necessarily choose very often but I think having spoken to Ali, she's <laughs> seems really nice, mm, um, mm. which kind of possibly shouldn't influence me, but certainly does. It made me much more sort of sympathetic to, to giving this a go. And um, also, I think with her first book, Miracle on Regent Street, she said it's a, a Christmas story. Read it at Christmas time. So mm. I might save that for a, a sort of relaxing treat. Mm. Sort of, It's the kind of thing where I can imagine myself perhaps reading it in the bath with a hot chocolate yeah. or something like that. I, I I know people who do, who love that, so I yep. think she might be onto a winner there. Yeah, might might be a nice change. And so the next author we spoke to was Wendy Wallace. That's with her book, uh, The Painted Bridge. Uh, this is actually her debut, and it's set in uh, a private asylum, Lake House, um, and it's it says a private asylum for genteel women of a delicate nature, uh, and this is sort of eighteen fifty nine. The first thing that springs to mind for me is. Uh, Wilkie Collins, yeah. Woman in White, um, classic kind of Victorian sort of gothic woman trapped in a, a madhouse when she's actually sane. Um, so immediately that kind of rang those bells for me. Well, she quite liked that comparison when you said that, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. She, yeah she, sounds, she seemed to like the sounds of that. I mean, I, I don't know how, how accurate that will be when I actually get to reading it, but, you know, I'm, I'm quite hopeful. And this, and, uh, this book's actually out now. Came yeah. out in May, so um, you can go out and pick, pick this one out now if you if you like the sound of it. But um, I was certainly intrigued, especially with the use of photography. That's yeah, mentioned throughout. she was she was talking about the idea that um, I you know obviously I don't know how much people are aware of this. This is something I'm actually more familiar with from reading Philip Pullman's um, Ruby and the Smoke series of young people's novels. But um, the Victorians were really obsessed with photography and the idea that photography in some way provided a, a kind of truer or kind of more objective view mm. of the person that it oh, was right. something of your essence that was captured by it sort of thing and I, I guess this goes along with the kind of spiritualist movement a bit as ask, well there was a lot of spirit photography where there were well there's a lot of trick photography going on as well yeah i mean they were really experimenting with those kind of first you know truly analog kind of photography mm. techniques and it it seems that there's um the the physician the the kind of well i suppose he's not a psychiatrist at the time because that hadn't really been invented but the the doctor there he's called lucas st Clair, and he believes that um through photography you can get a more accurate picture of in this case these these women who've been incarcerated rightly or wrongly in the asylum i mean the other thing about um, victorian ladies asylums uh, was that quite often they were places to sh to sort of shut away wives who the husband for whatever reason wanted to kind of get rid of or <laughs> pretend wasn't around any longer um it could be that they were shut up there in fact because um you know some people because they were deaf that, and and they couldn't communicate properly people thought something had 
gone wrong, gone wrong with, with right, them yeah. <laughs> you know it could be because they'd done something scandalous and the the family didn't want to be associated with them anymore it could be because they'd had a baby out of wedlock all, all sorts of things or just just because they were troublesome and they just wouldn't behave so an awful lot of women with absolutely nothing wrong with them whatsoever were shut up in these private asylums. So I'm, I'm quite interested to read it from a, a kind of social historical point of view. And there's obviously a bit of a, a kind of mystery there. What is actually going on in this place? You know, I, yeah, mm. it's, it seems really interesting to me. Because you said before that you wanted to read more historical fiction. So yeah. This certainly does sound like an intriguing one for me as well. I think I'd be quite interested to read, pick this one up. Yeah, no, definitely. I think it's it's perhaps not as historical as I was originally thinking, but certainly it's it's something that I'm kind of looking to get a bit more into. And I, it's something that I do enjoy. When you did say that as part of the research for the book, she took a, a day's course in photography. Yeah, well, not just photography, but actually the the preparation mm. of the plates, you mixing yeah. the chemicals together. Because I mean, it was almost quite a sort of alchemical yes. <laughs> sort of you know it's task at the time. Itself. And in the book, photography is only what twenty years old, mm. so it's quite a new a new thing. At yeah, the time. it's a, yeah a scientific breakthrough, mm. really. I found it quite interesting that she's currently writing her her second book, and she said that she felt with the second book she doesn't need to do as much research. It's more to do with the story. Is is it? Yeah, I thought that was quite interesting. That you know, and a, a couple of the other, you know the other, the other writers t- talked about this as well. Um, Ali Harris was saying that um, her her research was more like the the sort of music at the time. Mm. You know, looking at the different memories, she needed something to to ground each memory in a certain time period. So she was looking at the the songs that were in the charts, the films that were out, things like that, uh, and then. The next person that we're going to talk to, uh, he obviously uh, talk about. He obviously does a lot of um, research for yeah. for some aspects of his books. Well, this is Dean Crawford. Um, his third book, which he was going to talk about, Apocalypse, I believe, is out this week. His main character is a uh, he's called Ethan Warner, and he's described well he described the series as X Files meets Michael Crichton. So I, I've said before that I'm a big Michael Crichton fan. I do like my sort of I suppose techno thrillers. Yeah. Of, yeah. thrillers with a, with a grounding in reality you know you feel like you're you're learning something as you're going along but this is much more a sort of sci-fi yeah i think this starts to branch to yeah more into kind of science fiction rather than technological yeah it's, it's you know it's probably you know a few years ahead of our times or whatever but in apocalypse this one seems to be a bit to do with time travel that the baddies can go forwards and back in time while our heroes have a way of monitoring the earth through all the CCTV and all the cameras that we're all that we're all using. So, um, and I, th- I think he said as well that the the good guys have have kind of then got a device to almost like virtual reality, mm. so you can almost sort of be in the place, yeah, to to see what's happening. I mean, that sounded quite intriguing to me. And did did you gather that the the bad guys would be able to go to that time or just to to look back and forward uh, to the I'm time? I'm not sure. And I'm just having a quick look on the blurb on the back, and that's not entirely clear. But I'm intrigued as to this. I mean, I'll, I'll probably read the first two before I get to the third one. Yeah. But Ethan Warner is his, and he's, I think he has a partner called uh, Nicola Lopez. So it's, it seems to be, a, you know, the two of them are the, yeah. the crime solving, and they're called on by the governments in the times of need. So <laughs> it, it looks like a, it, like a, a good little page turner. And I've said before, you know, Michael Crichton, I've got his last book to read. Yeah, don't want it all to be over. And um, when I was talking to Dean, he he was a big Michael Crichton fan as well. 
Oh, that's interesting. So, I mean, did he say which of Michael Crichton's books he was a particular fan of, or or just more in general? It was just more in general, really. Um, I can I suspect it's I can probably guess which ones he he likes. It's the more recent ones, which do deal with technology and nanobots, and there there is a whole Michael Crichton about time travel. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and he uh, he was talking about how he likes to, he likes to ground it in reality. So he talks about a certain plane that they use to fly down the um, the American coast and that it's a real plane. And so yeah, you can pick up things that you, you can learn about. And I'm sure at the same time, he, he tweaks things to make it convenient for him. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, yeah, the impression that I got is, you know, he's a real kind of technology enthusiast, particularly mm. kind of military technology. He wants to be a pilot. You know, unfortunately, his eyesight let him down. So, so he he's obviously, out, yeah. he's obviously trying to sort of get those, you know, those very accurate elements in there. But then, I, yeah, as, as you say, kind of adding a little bit more, you know, it goes a little bit bigger, a little bit faster. Uh, so that that crash there while I was speaking was Rob's um, Rob's <laughs> watch making contact with the the tabletop. So apologies for that. <laughs> but yeah, it, it seems quite interesting. I don't. Again, I think that's probably one where it's not necessarily the kind of thing I would mm. necessarily go for. I you know I do read a lot of crime kind of detective stuff, but it tends to be more the kind of straightforward. It's it's a policeman. Yeah. Here's a crime. Let's try and solve it, sort of thing, rather than having that technology element. But also, I, I read science fiction, mm. but then that doesn't tend to have the the kind of crime thriller element to it. So I, well, I haven't then, ever really. This is then somewhere between the two. Yeah. I mean, on the question of how much of this is real, he does put in the author's notes. I often get asked by readers just how much of the science incorporated within my novels is real. The simple answer is that all of the science within my novels is real, but some of it is stretched to embrace the extreme events that are part and parcel of thriller fiction. So there we are. He's he's using... He's got a starting point in a real scientific discovery or event, and then he's he's using it to his own advantage, really. Yeah, it's a a bit increased, a a bit exaggerated in order to to create that reality. Hmm. I know. It's quite interesting, actually. Yeah, Hmm. so maybe that's something... I might might let you have a go at those first, but perhaps I'll, I'll come to them afterwards. I'm quite intrigued. After... The last thing I read, you know, I, I feel like I've got a, a kind of starting point in the, the kind of male-female detective thriller kind of things. Yeah. So the last um, book we come to is Robert Ryan and Dead Man's Land. This is one that also involved a lot of research. And I think this is the one that both caught our eye the most. We're quite yeah. interested to do a look at this one. Um, so this is uh, Robert Ryan up till now has been mainly known for his Second World War novels. Although he has written two um, under a different um, name, Tom yeah. Neal, which were uh, kind of modern day, sort FBI of, d- yeah, kind of American yeah. sort of thriller novels. But this is his first one for Simon and Schuster, and it's set in the trenches of World War One, uh, Flanders Field, and it's about a doctor during World War One. But this doctor just so happens to be uh, Doctor John Watson. Yeah, which is straight as soon as I heard that, that my ears sort of pricked yeah. up. You know, I, I like I like a bit of war in my stories, but yeah, and obviously having Doctor Watson there kind of adds a certain frisson. Mm. So it's set after the last um, Sherlock Holmes sh- uh, short story, his last bow, where it's hinted that Watson is going to go back to his profession, that of being a, yeah. a doctor. Uh, so this is him in the trenches. And um, a body is discovered, I think we believe, and 
Watson declares that it's murder. Now, the fact that you've got quite a lot of slaughter going on around this yeah. uh, with the war in general. So I'm, I'm intrigued by this. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the impression that we got from what um, Robert said about it was that the, the authorities aren't really bothered about that. They want him to just get on and, mm. you know, carry on being a, a medical professional sort of thing. But obviously he's had all that experience working with homes. He can see that something isn't right and mm. he, he wants to pursue that. And I think the implication was that the man has been murdered by his own side. Yes. He talks a lot about the, what were called, um, PALS brigades, where the idea was... Uh, PALS battalions. PALS battalions, sorry. Where the idea was that you would sign up everyone, everyone who signed up from the same town or the same profession would then go and they would serve together. There there was none of this mixing them about. Well, the good side was that everyone knew each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, The downside is that if you happen to have a feud with your next door neighbour... You were then having to fight beside them, and this this feud might be taken to you with you onto the battlefield. And I I guess this is what he was implying with, yeah, potentially as the motive. I mean, he did say. I mean, it, it was quite an interesting discussion. Anyway, he did say that you know the the other downside of it for you know the the people at the time was of course that you know these battalions were all attacking at the same time. You know, mm. on, the, on the first day of the Somme, entire villages worth of, of young men were all wiped out at the same time. So mm. they didn't actually do this again after that. They realised how um, sort of un- unfair it was for certain villages to just lose every you know entire families the, the, mm. or the men of entire families would, would all be wiped out at once. So this was a very unique situation, which is why it's really just. This this, this kind of one chance to to use the idea in this way. He um, was also saying that uh, it's it's kind of been endorsed in a way by the um, is is it the, the Conan Doyle estate? Conan so, Doyle estate. Uh, it's all it sounds all very terribly complicated, but there's certain issues with copyright. But the character of Watson Holmes, Professor Challenger. Yep. Admittedly, I didn't know um, Moriarty. Um, and Moriarty are all copyrighted through the estate so he did get the um, endorsement of the estate mm. so this is a you know officially endorsed uh, yeah it's it's an official yeah, Sherlock Holmes official Sherlock Holmes yes uh, novel yeah I found it quite interesting when he's talking about the research he went into some detail about sort of the surgery that mm. was going on the rather gruesome idea of it was the first blood transfusions yeah and i think our watson is meant to be sort of at the forefront of this which um, i well which yeah. does fit with his his experiences with holmes who's always very experimental well, <laughs> in yes. what he does and so home um Holmes. Uh, Watson is there presiding over these kind of first ever goes at doing blood transfusions. Mm. He was saying you had to do them, actually, you know, person to person mm. because they didn't yet really have the the blood bag system, and so it could cause a lot of problems. You get the the shock of getting someone with the wrong blood type. So this was all at the, mm. the very forefront of of medical this is because it was innovation. The first, the first war where you had poison gas, machine guns. They've probably never sort of seen these sorts of wounds or injuries before. Mm, and, and that was very interesting in itself. Again, this kind of historical perspective. So, yeah, as, as well as just the, the fact that it's got Watson in it, it's got the, mm. the kind of, you know, quite historical accuracy into what was a, a very gruesome but a very fascinating time. So one of the questions that um, all four asked was, uh, do they feel restricted by, by genre, by the, the labels that are placed upon their books? And I thought we had quite an interesting sort of range of opinions for that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we've already said that um, Ali Harris said she was quite happy to be for her books to be known as chick lit. But then it can be used as a derogatory term. Yeah. It can be dismissive. Oh, that's just chick lit. Oh, it's, it's rubbish sort of thing. So then in that case, 
it can be something which is is negative rather than just a, a way of being classified. Mm. And I think um, Dean Crawford was saying that you know you could call his books thrillers, but they're also very high tech. You could say it was science fiction because mm. of how scientific it is and to do with time travel. But then you could also say it's crime because it's to do with criminals and, and murders and, and so on. So yeah. I mean, I, I think he was saying that he, you know he wouldn't necessarily know what genre to to put himself into you had robert ryan who was saying that well his his books written under his own name are really all kind of world war one world war two and his publisher actually we we discovered later when we asked him was the one to suggest that he wrote his modern day novels under a different name under, no, the, I asked under him at Tom Neal, yeah. Isn't that a bit of a mistake? Because you've got all these people who like Robert Ryan books and then <laughs> they're not going to possibly not to discover Tom Neal, are they? I think basically what we learn is that, as I think what um, Wendy Wallace said, she doesn't set out to make um, to write women's fiction, but it's probably just easier for a publisher or a reviewer mm. to go, oh, okay, this is a this is a chick lit or this is a thriller. It's just, it's. I don't think, uh, what, what we learn is it doesn't really affect the writing. No. It's more afterwards. And obviously they're not they're not setting out to write within a particular genre. They're writing the story they want to write. But I mean, perhaps perhaps it is just literally it's got to go under a label on a shelf in a bookshop. Yeah. So it needs to be sent out in that manner. But then, if you, for example, with, with Wendy Wallace's book, The Painted Bridge, if you were given that, you were yeah. given that, and. Yeah told right well this this is this is women's fiction is that going to give you a different impression of it than the discussion that we had earlier where i likened it to wilkie collins and said that it's a victorian mystery and and so it would because i probably would go into it with preconceptions i mean would you pick it up Uh, perhaps even possibly possibly not I mean, just looking at the books, we've got them on the tables here in front mm. of me. With Chicklet, I go, right, I th- I've got a pretty good idea what happens at the end of that. Or I know that with Dean Crawford's book, it's it's a thriller, so it's going to be a page turn. It's going to be very fast paced. Yeah. So you, you do go with all these labels, you do go into them with certain preconceptions. So with Wendy's one, that's probably the one where I don't know where that's going to mm. end up. And that makes it all the more interesting, I think. Possibly, I don't know. These are all perfectly good books and they're probably really good reads but when you start applying labels to things it can get really complicated yeah i think even yeah it's sort of for for bloggers and reviewers sometimes being told a lot by the publisher when you get them is not necessarily that helpful i mean i've i've picked up and read lots of stuff that where and i you know i don't actually tend to read the blurbs particularly before mm. i start i think but i mean even just from the covers of them it's really interesting looking at the the four authors the different kind of covers that they've got you know the robert ryan i you know without reading anything about that i would immediately know that was world war one mm-hmm. yeah without even reading the words on the cover just from looking at it it's, it's almost black and white except for the words of the title dead man's lamb which are in red and um, a review from the sunday times and the word sunday times is in red and then the rest of it is very white um with a, a sort of uh, shot across the top with um broken tree stumps and yeah. and post maybe fence posts or whatever and just a, a silhouette of a man and you, immediately that says world war one yeah so without you know without them even saying anything it puts it into a club i mean the, the ali harris the first last kiss it's got a kind of turquoisey blue background mm. and the writing is in white and pink and again silhouette but it's a like a young couple and some pretty lights and and twiddly 
lampposts <laughs> and yeah. so on. And yeah, immediately, and you know, same exactly the same colour scheme on Miracle on Regent Street. Well, yeah, and Dean Crawford has generic running man, which now seems to be a theme <laughs> on, on most of these books. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think certainly for for the writers themselves, I don't think any of them particularly felt restricted by genre that much. It was an interesting. I, I, it's a great question to ask. Yeah, and I think it's it's funny how little they felt restricted, and yet how completely genreified yeah. the books have become by the time and they actually get into print. That's a publishing marketing thing. Yeah, but yeah, I'm, I'm just not sure it's always helpful. Perhaps I don't know. I mean, the the last thing that I wanted to talk about, which is another one of the questions that they got asked, was um, how do they handle negative reviews? Mm. And okay, they they all started off on quite a similar line. Well, Dean but, said he didn't care at of, all, did he? He said, yeah. "Oh, don't read them." It was very sort of <laughs> flippant, sort of. Oh, I don't read them. Yeah, and then the other. Um, sort of Ali and Wendy they sort of said well they try and take the positives from them you know I guess if the same comment comes up time and time again they might try and address that in their in their next book but I think Robert had by far the most interesting <laughs> reaction to the question well yeah I mean he basically looked round to everyone and said come on be honest I hate them they're horrible of course you don't want to read negative reviews for yourself and I think it was quite I think the other the other people on the phone all sort of went oh phew that's all right we can be Someone truthful said it, yeah yeah that was all right but I think again that was quite interesting considering who their audience were which is of course a load of bloggers and reviewers we can all write review yeah uh, yeah and it's I suppose it did make me then think about reviews that I've written where perhaps I've I've actually been quite cutting mm. because I really did think it was a poor effort. I think I I don't think I've ever been negative about a book where I thought the author put everything into it. Right. But for example, I don't know if people might have read um on adventureswithwords.com my review of Crusher by Niall Leonard. But that that was written as uh, Nano Remo, National Novel Writing Month. He wrote the entire thing in a month. Yeah. And he, according to the, the kind of buzz or whatever, um, he wrote that as a, a challenge, uh, a sort of response to a challenge from his wife, um, E.L. James. Of, Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, yeah, Fifty Shades of Grey. Now, interesting, because well, both of those books aren't well known for being well written. No. And I think that when I when I read this, I you know, I I wasn't coming to it with necessarily any particular preconception about it. I mean the the cover looked like an adult uh kind of murder mystery sort of cover. I thought, fair enough, let's give it a go. And I was just so struck by the lack of care mm. that had been taken. And it, it really did make me think they literally have just written this in thirty days and then gone done. And it's been given to a publisher who's gone, oh, it's the husband of E.L. James, we can market well, this yeah. and or win it. But perhaps that's me being a bit cynical. I don't know. But I think the reason I felt I had a license to be so negative about it was that it no effort had been put into it. I just thought there were so many things that could be better and it would have taken so little effort to make them better. Mm. But we've had this conversation before where I've actually said it's I find it easier to write a negative review than write a positive one. Because for me, uh, if I if I love a book, I just keep going. Oh, it's fantastic! You've got to read it. <laughs> well, it had a great story, great character. Whereas to write a bad review, I can say I didn't believe the characters X Y Z. Here's some examples mm. of some shoddy dialogue, or there were plot <laughs> holes, or I found it predictable. 
I find it easier to write a bad review because I can specifically say this is why I didn't like it. Where if a book grabs you, I find that often harder to put into words. And or, it can, I can actually yeah. be similar in book club. I mean, mm. I know when, you know, when we were discussing Pigeon English, we, we had a lot of fun discussing it, mm. even though we didn't necessarily have a lot of fun reading no. it. Um, so, yeah. And then when, when you get to book club, if everyone has enjoyed reading the book, it can be quite hard to really get a discussion going unless you've got someone willing to really pick it apart mm. and people yeah. don't necessarily want to do that with a book that they've really enjoyed i mean I don't, I don't know i think the the reviews that i find hardest to write which is actually what ali harris said about the reviews she finds hardest to read of her own books are the ones where it's just a bit meh in the where middle. it's in the yeah. middle where there's nothing that's made you passionate either to love it or to hate it and she was saying you know at least if you've made someone passionate about it mm. Uh, you know either way then that shows you've there's something in there that's grabbed their attention but if it's just sort of in the middle oh, it was all right then that's almost worse that you know that that was what she thought and that, those are the ones that i find yeah. really hard because there's there's nothing to pick on either good or bad and as someone reading that review afterwards you kind of go oh well it's all right it's an average book yeah who really wants to read an average book <laughs> Well, no, I mean, you're more, I'd say you're more likely to read something that's had a really entertaining bad review yeah. to, to see what they were talking about rather than a, a middling one. So hopefully that gives you a bit of a flavour of the kind of things that will be coming up on the site uh, reviewed in the future. Just to go over the titles again, it's uh, The First Last Kiss by Ali Harris, uh, Dead Man's Land by Robert Ryan, Dean Crawford, Apocalypse and uh, The Painted Bridge by Wendy Wallace. Now, a couple of other things that have come up on the site recently. There's been a few reviews that we've done of some books. Uh, we've reviewed um, Fear Not by Anne Holt, uh, va uh, Vampirates, Demons of the Ocean by Justin Sompa, which is a, a young adult book, and also uh, The Nosferatu Scroll by James Becker. And we've also done a, a sort of his and hers review of Skyfall, the latest James Bond film. Next week, uh, we'll be doing our Book Plate Books podcast. Um, Rob is reading The Snow Child currently, because that's the book that we'll be talking about. I've already read that. If you want to get a flavour of my initial impressions of it, there's a, a review on adventureswithwords.com already. We'd always love to hear from you and your opinions on anything that we're reading or you're reading at the moment. And there's a uh, number of ways you can now get in touch. We're at Word Adventures on Twitter. You can like our page on Facebook. There is a Goodreads discussion group where we talk about the books that we're reading at the moment. And you can also now email us with any uh, questions or comments contact at adventureswithwords.com and we'd love to hear from you uh, I've been Rob I've been Kate and thanks for listening Adventures with Words is brought to you by Audible try Audible free for 30 days and download any audiobook for free for your free trial go to www.adventureswithwords.com forward slash audible Thank you.